Welcome back. I'm Peter St. Ange. This is a weekly roundup of my daily videos on the economy and freedom, where I try to cut through the BS and the smoke and mirrors and lay out exactly what the clowns are trying to do to you and what is coming next. I'm also active on Twitter and Substack, so I hope to see you there. Inflation around the world is not going away, and central bankers have no idea what to do beyond yet more panic hikes in the dark. In the past few days, the Bank of England hiked another 50 basis points, that's half a percent. Norway also hiked 50 to defend its sliding currency, in other words, domestic inflation. Switzerland piled on another 25 points, its 11th hike. Turkey hiked 6.5% in a hopeless defense of its plunging lira. Australia and Canada recently imposed surprise hikes. The European Central Bank just raised rates again, and I've mentioned the Fed is signaling yet more hikes to come. I have been talking recently how core U.S. inflation has been stuck for six months straight. The EU and Britain are even worse. Across the wider OECD group of 38 rich countries, core inflation has been stuck above 7% for almost a year now. And yet, rates have been soaring around the world. The standard central bank playbook, how to fight inflation. Those rates have managed to slow their economies to a crawl, held up by little more than accumulated savings during the pandemic when you couldn't leave the house. But even that is fading. The eurozone just entered a, quote, technical recession, while U.S. growth has been negative in four of the past five quarters. Stuck inflation is a central banker's worst dream. They know that inflation is how they're graded by voters, meaning if inflation is too high, too long, they will lose their independence. They'll get taken over by the legislature, hence the panic hikes. Of course, the problem is that inflation worldwide is being driven by governments spending too much money, yet central banks are trying to cancel it, not by telling those governments to live within their means, but by crushing the private sector. This apparently is not working. Yes, it is crushing the private economy. It is not actually ending the deficit-driven inflation. At this point, the challenge for central banks is that on the one hand, they are desperate to kill inflation, but they also know that there is a long lag on hikes. It can take up to a couple years for rate hikes to show up in the economy. So they risk going too far. Essentially, they are driving at night with no head, with no headlights, but they're desperate to stomp on the accelerator. Stepping outside central bank fantasy land, 500 years of classical economics, today known as Austrian economics, sees things very differently. That durable inflation is not mass illusion. It is not Putin or stuck boats in the Suez. It is printing metric tons of money. The rich world did this to buy COVID lockdowns. It took a lot of sweetheart loans and public handouts to buy public support for lockdowns. And at this point, although the printers have calmed down, a lot of all of that fresh money is about $9 trillion worth. It was saved And so it is now gradually bleeding out into circulation, in other words, into inflation. Unless all those fresh trillions are soaked up by slashing government spending and by central banks selling off government debt, it will keep leaking out while central banks keep panic hiking into an abyss. America's biggest opinion poller, Gallup, released a new poll the Washington Examiner called Shocking that found Americans are swinging socially conservative at breakneck speed. Why shocking? Because the poll covers the 
period of the most aggressive censorship regime since FDR, and apparently it backfired. Now, whether or not you personally are conservative, the point is the concentrated firepower of the entire belief industrial complex was aimed at a single group of Americans while silencing competing opinions, and it did not work. The other day I talked about how the rise of citizen journalism means the elite gatekeepers are losing their monopoly. This is fuel to the fire. Going to the poll, in just two years, social conservatives soared 11 points, so about a quarter, going from 47% of those expressing a preference to now 58%. So three out of five Americans now call themselves social conservative and rising fast. By generation, it went up 11 points among Gen X. It went up 13 points among millennials, who are swinging right even faster. It even went up six points among Gen Z, who are just getting their first taste of reality. So what happened? In short, I think the left overplayed their hand. The rise of blogs starting in 1999 democratized public discourse, bypassing the gatekeepers, to the point that censorship as a concept was melting away. As a search term, it had dropped from index 24 to 2 by 2010. Anybody over the age of 30 remembers the early internet where you could say anything you darn well please. Then all of a sudden, censorship came roaring back, jumping after the 2008 crisis and then taking another jump after Trump was elected. Why? Because the establishment realized it was losing. In the 2008 crisis, the unwashed masses used social media to build anti-establishment movements like Tea Party and Occupy, going after bipartisan crony bailouts. The left's social media utopia was turning into a nightmare as they watched the public turn on them take away their megaphone, their monopoly on truth. Brexit and Trump only sealed the deal. Free speech on the internet was replacing the newspapers and the TVs that had long been the left's in-house monopoly. And so the empire struck back. One by one, they picked off anti-establishment voices like Alex Jones or Milo Yiannopoulos. And then came COVID. The lockdowns delivered the left absolute power, even closing churches, something that's been unimaginable in Western society since, oh, the peace of Westphalia. But that power was a trap because it was sustained on an army of rabid activists who, it turns out, had no interest in being reasonable. The elite had seized the tiger by the tail and could not let go. This meant upping the ante on progressively absurd ideas from basic biology to brainwashing children into a racial and gender moral hierarchy that is repugnant to America's egalitarian ethos where everybody is equal, yes, even married Christians. The result is that today, quote, social conservative for millions of Americans simply means normal or common sense. And now that we are getting back to free speech for the plebs, they are back in the driver's seat. I don't know if it means America goes full-on conservative, but I do think common sense is coming. The left has more stings in its tail. It's a big establishment, and it'll take time to drain. But I think it has peaked, and the tide is turning. A few days ago, The Telegraph reported that the German central bank, the Bundesbank, may need a taxpayer bailout as its, quote, money printing spree has left it with losses on its $650 billion bond portfolio. This will probably be true of all the European central banks. So what happened? The way the Eurozone is structured is that the ECB, the European Central Bank, makes decisions on monetary policy. It's the one who inflates, but it delegates the dirty work to national central banks, along with standard central bank tasks 
like commercial bank supervision and stability, the payment system, and critically, buying up bonds to get fresh counterfeitings into the economy. In this case, the Bundesbank was instructed to buy bonds by the ECB, both to vote by lockdowns and to, quote, stimulate a long-dying European economy. I mentioned the other day how Europe's economy is progressively consisting of these endless trillion-dollar stimulus packages that resemble Soviet five-year plans, but bigger and faster. One of the pillars of that permanent stimulus is the so-called asset purchase program they set up after the near death of Europe's banking system a decade ago. It works like quantitative easing, meaning they type a bunch of zeros on an Excel sheet, pretend that's money, and use it to buy assets. This pumps the new money into the economy, causing inflation, but it also causes economic activity that's kind of a tissue fire. It burns bright, but it burns short, so it needs more and more tissue. So far, the APP has bought, meaning it printed, about $3.2 trillion in assets. Remember, those weren't bought to make a profit. They were just buying anything whatsoever, which is why it is such good fun to be rich in a central bank regime. You sell your crap for top dollar and stick taxpayers with the losses, or in this case, the Bundesbank. The problem now is the same as the U.S. Aggressive rate hikes broke the equilibrium. The ECB didn't hike as hard as the Fed. They hiked about 3, 3.5% in the past nine months compared to 5 at the Fed. Still, that's bad enough to cause losses and negative cash flow on central bank portfolios. This means the Bundesbank is now paying more to commercial banks and interests than it's earning on those bonds, and they can't pay less since lower rates would recharge inflation. So what is next? Given the eurozone is still sporting 6% headline inflation and has already signaled further hikes, the losses on national central banks will get bigger and bigger. These losses are not yet at the level of the Swiss National Bank, which lost $141 billion last year on monetary gambles. That's on a country with 8 million people. Still, the ECB losses are likely to grow fast. Europe, like the Fed, painted itself into a corner by printing metric tons of money during COVID. German voters never imagined the Bundesbank would go bust, just like Americans never thought the Fed would go bust. But it looks like this is the new normal. Janet Yellen says she's not too worried about recession, while the Fed says brace for impact. The other day I talked about gaslighting as policy, that they lie to trick Americans into overspending and working for lower pay, even if that leaves us unprepared when crisis hits. Last week, we got a fresh load. As Yellen said, the recession is not coming. She wants you to keep spending, even as a new Fed paper admits it's going to get very ugly. At a Bloomberg news conference in Paris, where Janet Yellen's working to use your taxes to bribe poor countries into joining the climate jihad, she gave a speech on recession risk saying, quote, my odds on it, if anything, have gone down because look at the resilience of the labor market and inflation is coming down. I've talked in previous videos how the labor market is an illusion for millions of people plowed into permanent government benefits during the pandemic, about three million since 2019. And because unemployment only counts people who are actually looking for jobs, all of those able-bodied people on government disability reduce the official unemployment rate, even as American cities fill with able-bodied young men hanging out on the corner getting high. They're not unemployed. They're statistically retired. 
As for inflation, I've mentioned that core inflation, which the Fed takes as the real one and excludes energy and food, is stuck and going nowhere for six months now. The reason headline inflation is coming down is energy prices plunging, which they typically do in a recession, with an assist from supply chains that are now half empty, again, a classic recession indicator. Now, Yellen should know all this, and she has a PhD. She's taught at Harvard, and in fact, she's a former Fed chair. But of course, her job is not to know things, to instead cheerlead the Biden economy off a cliff. While Yellen was finger-painting Utopia, the Fed came out with a new paper that the Wall Street Journal sums up as, quote, brace for impact. The paper found that investment and jobs drop much harder than thought among distressed firms, defined as firms in the bottom 25th percentile of distance to default, when monetary policy is con is contractionary. In fact, monetary policy is currently the most contractionary since the 1970s going by rate hikes and going by money supply growth. It's actually the most contractionary since the 1930s. Even worse, the paper finds that the share of distressed firms is already the highest since the absolute peak of the 2008 crisis. In fact, there have only been three episodes since the 1970s that were this bad. And keep in mind, that's counting full recessions. We're only in the first innings of this hike cycle, and those normally take one to two years to really hit. We're at nine months. So the first light breezes of the coming hurricane, and we're already at peak 2008 levels of distress. To understand what's next, you've got to read between the lies we're fed. Right now, those hints of reality are saying it is the calm before the storm. Time to buckle up. The Fed just announced the results of its annual bank stress tests. One might compare it to passing an exam you wrote yourself, but even with the friend treatment, there were a number of red flags. These annual stress tests were mandated after the 2008 crisis showed the Fed's spectacular failure to keep Wall Street from going bust and using it as a bailout piggy bank. The stress tests model, quote, adverse economic scenarios like recessions and play out whether the banks would go bust. If the banks pass, the Fed usually lets them reduce their capital cushion, which banks love to do so they can hand billions to shareholders and leave taxpayers with the bailouts. Now, it's worth noting that all the major banks also passed stress tests last year, and yet we've already had three big regionals go under before the recession even hits in full. So passing the stress test does not mean banks are safe. Indeed, one critic savaged the tests as, quote, dangerous, misleading, incomplete, and resulting in false comfort. Even so, the Fed reported big red flags, especially in commercial real estate and credit cards. In fact, big enough to sink several of America's biggest banks, including Goldman Sachs and Morgan Stanley, which aren't really banks per se. They bought bank status back in 2008, so they too could feast on taxpayer bailouts. At any rate, starting with real estate, I've talked a few times about the dire state of commercial real estate, which is especially hitting regional banks who live on these stuff. But it turns out even the majors are at risk. In the Fed's severely adverse scenario of a bad recession, the 23 major banks would lose on average almost 10% of their loan portfolio 
putting many close to insolvency. For Goldman, it's 16%. Morgan Stanley's at 14%. And the worst exposed traditional bank is Citizens, losing 12% of its loan portfolio. It's even worse for credit cards, where default rates normally soar during a recession. They almost doubled in 2008. Here, in that recession scenario, the average bank could lose 15% of its loan portfolio, Goldman, again, leads the casino at 25%, with 22% for Capital One. Yes, all those credit card commercials mean they are betting the farm that Americans keep paying 19% card fees. In total, the stress tests say $540 billion is at risk in these major banks, including losses in office properties that would triple the levels of 2008. That would put the aggregate banking system much closer to insolvency. Keep in mind, these stress tests are just the majors. They're excluding most regional banks, so they're projecting the majors would mostly survive. But there are potentially thousands of regional lenders that are already on the ropes even before that severely adverse scenario hits. The banking system is currently on life support, both from the March pre-bailouts, extending FDIC to billionaires and subsidized loans on bad bonds, and also from the $1.5 trillion slush fund known as the FHLB, which is supposed to support mortgages, but is currently bailing out Wall Street instead. That means even if you take these stress tests as gospel, if the bailouts are not enough, At best, we'll see more failed regionals gobbled up by these privileged survivors. If, on the other hand, the stress tests are incomplete or even dangerous, the bailouts could get very big very fast. Last week, I was on the Charles Payne Show talking about Ray Dalio's new article in Time magazine saying the world is, quote, on the brink of great disorder. If you don't know Ray Dalio, he's the founder of Bridgewater, one of the world's biggest hedge funds, which he founded after getting drunk, punching his boss in the nose, and oddly enough, getting fired. Beyond this non-traditional career strategy, Dalio's interesting because he pays a lot of attention to history, looking for parallels to today's events and tracing out what happened last time. Indeed, despite modern trappings, mankind has been here before, often many times before. Dalio wrote an article a few days ago listing three things that freak him out because they haven't happened since the 1930s. One, soaring debt and inflation. Two, historic gaps in income and wealth. Three, great powers flirting with world war. He's worried that these could mean our system could completely crash in the next 18 months, reaching a, quote, major inflection that will lead to big changes. He even worries about civil war due to rising anti-elite sentiment on both sides. He estimates that 30 to 40 percent of Americans are now populist, two thirds on the right, as in Trump, one third on the left, as in Bernie, with RFK currently trying to bridge the two. Meanwhile, he thinks the elite supporting moderates don't have any fight in them. They're coasting on inertia. Nobody listens to them unless they are paid to. I think he is correct to be worried about these things, though I don't think he pins the root cause, which is the growth of government and above all the scope and scale of the Federal Reserve. These drive debt and inflation, his point number one. They drive wealth inequality as the Fed takes from the poor in inflation and gives to the rich in asset purchases. Worse, they drive political polarization because big government breaks more and more things while pushing everything it can into the political arena, yes, including the kids, where both sides must fight or grovel. 
So populism on both left and right took off in the wake of the 2008 crisis, both because 2008 was such a total failure of the elite and because it revealed the deep corruption running the country. Millions of Americans concluded correctly that the system is rigged. COVID was 2008 on steroids, epic incompetence and epic corruption that we're only now starting to reveal. As for Ray's third point, war, historically, when the masses reject the establishment, the elite's first response is war because it unites and distracts like nothing else. Plus, war has the very appealing feature that national security can be used to suppress dissent. War is push-button totalitarianism. It always has been. No COVID required. So what is the solution? The easy way is the elite proactively shrinks in scope. Get government out of the economy, out of social engineering, out of propagandizing kids or suppressing bona fide disagreement. The establishment is unpopular because it is trying to control everything and failing. So control less. Of course, this will not happen. It takes a wise elite to proactively step back, and this bunch is not wise. In which case, Dalio's great disorder becomes more and more likely with each new failure. Is the economy wily coyotes standing under a giant rock waiting for it to fall? The other day I mentioned that central banks around the world are panic hiking rates because inflation will not go away, yet their statistics keep telling them that the economy is fine, which should not be happening after the worst rate hikes in 50 years. A few days ago, the Wall Street Journal took a stab at explaining why. In short, the pandemic lockdowns created distortions that are masking the statistics, even as the recession builds steam. Now, we can step back and ask, what is a recession? In classical or Austrian economics, it's when central banks cause dramatic changes in interest rates, the interest rates determine production. So first, they make money super cheap to artificially boost the economy so it makes politicians look good. That finances a bunch of unsustainable loans, including to crappy businesses that only exist because money is so cheap. So think of it like evolution if you suspended survival of the fittest. The weak do not die off. They get more money. So that's the boom. The bust comes because low rates lead to inflation, which central banks fight by slamming the brakes and hiking rates. That causes the crap businesses to fail in a cluster, which means unemployment and uncertainty that makes uh, consumers and businesses cut back on spending on top of the higher debt payments from the rate hikes themselves. So in that model, we're at the bus stage, purging the mistakes. Thing is, during lockdowns, they pumped out $9 trillion and held rates near zero for years. So there are a lot of mistakes to purge. Now, a lot of that money was paid directly to voters so they'd accept lockdowns. Combined with the fact everything was shut down, you couldn't do that Disney vacation, you couldn't even go out to dinner. This pushed the savings rate which has long gone along in the single digits, to 35% as people socked trillions away that they couldn't spend. In fact, a lot of that free money was permanent as governments went no questions asked on government benefits. In the U.S., for example, there are roughly 3 million people 
out of the labor force since pre-pandemic. That's part of the reason unemployment numbers look so good. With millions more on disability payments, which can last for life. Finally, supply chains were choked for over a year, meaning people could not upgrade their cars and builders could not build homes. This left a huge backlog of old cars and unbuilt housing once the supply chains did free up and we're still working through it. So put those all together and high savings plus people out of the labor force plus the backlog for durable goods, cars and houses are all muddying the statistics. The savings keep the consumer going. Disability reduces the official unemployment rate. Cars and houses keep GDP chugging along despite hundreds of thousands of layoffs. In all these cases, note the pattern. The good numbers are distortions and rebounds. It's not healthy growth, but it is statistical growth. The risk is that the distortions fool central banks working off statistics without understanding what's happening under the hood. That raises the risk that the entire West will impose the mother of all policy errors, stomping on the brakes so hard that they send their economies into a tailspin. As Chicago Fed President Goolsby put it recently, we may be Wiley Coyote standing under a giant rock waiting for it to fall. Thanks for listening. Remember to subscribe to get next week's episode right in your inbox. And I hope to see you on Twitter or Substack. We'll be watching. See you next time.